Welcome back to Roshcast, episode number 31. We hope you had a chance to check out the EM Clerkship podcast and thought the new collaboration was helpful. We already received a lot of great feedback. We're going to do another crossover episode this week. We'll be covering a couple of questions on everyone's favorite cardiac dysrhythmia, tachycardia, along with our regular random assortment of topics. That's right. And just like last week, make sure to check out Zach's podcast episode this past Sunday to drive home some of the points we covered today. All right, that's enough of an intro. Let's get started with a rapid review. Why don't we go over more of the rapid reviews that Yehuda has been uploading on the blog? There's some really great content there. Let's cover some OBGYN. A gravid female rolls into the trauma bay in extremis. While calling OB, they ask for an estimate of how far along she is. The fundus is just to the umbilicus. At how many weeks does the fundus typically reach the umbilicus? At umbilicus, you should be about 20 weeks. When the fundal height is to the pubic symphysis, you're at about 12 weeks. And at the xiphoid process, you're at 36 weeks. Remember that after 36 weeks, the fundal height actually regresses lately. Name some of the clinical findings of polycystic ovarian syndrome. Patients are often obese and complain of hirsutism, irregular menses, acne, and sleep-disordered breathing. You might also notice acanthosis nigricans and fatty liver disease. And last one for the review, how is PCOS typically managed? Although management is typically done in an outpatient setting, a common regimen could include OCPs, metformin, and lifestyle modification. Never bad to be fully informed, even if you aren't the one prescribing the meds. All right, let's get started with the new material for this week. Remember that the focus of the first couple of questions will be on tacky dysrhythmias, so get your amiodarone ready. A 58-year-old man is brought into the ED for chest pain that started 30 minutes prior to arrival while he was jogging in the park. Initially, the patient's cardiac monitor shows sinus tachycardia with a rate of 120 beats per minute. However, while you're interviewing the patient, he suddenly becomes pale and pulseless. The monitor shows VFib. Which of the following is the definitive next step to manage this patient's rhythm? Is it A, chest compressions, B, defibrillation, C, epinephrine, or D, synchronized cardioversion? So this is a witnessed arrest, and the patient is in ventricular fibrillation. The treatment here would be choice B, defibrillation. That's right, but there are some important learning points there, so why don't you flesh it out a bit more? Sure. The management of VFib depends on the scenario. In the case of a witnessed arrest, the treatment is immediate defibrillation, as in this vignette. For the case of an unwitnessed arrest with an unknown downtime, CPR or choice A should be immediately initiated. The theory here is that high-quality chest compressions will help prime the heart for an upcoming shock. And if we're defibrillating, what dose of electricity are we applying? Again, it depends. If you have a biphasic defibrillator, the dose is 200 joules. If you have a more antiquated monophasic defibrillator, the dose is 360. If you have both, you should choose the biphasic, as biphasic defibrillators have better first shock success rates, and they also cause less myocardial cell damage as they deliver less of an electrical current. And what about choices C and D, epinephrine and synchronized cardioversion? Epinephrine is certainly part of the cardiac arrest algorithm, but in patients with a shockable rhythm, defibrillation is the priority. Synchronized cardioversion is for patients with a palpable pulse, which isn't the case here, so it has no role here. Right, and remember that epi doesn't magically restart the heart. Epinephrine is an alpha agonist, which causes an increase in the peripheral vascular resistance, which increases the central aortic blood pressure and therefore coronary perfusion pressure during chest compressions. Epinephrine augments chest compressions. So in cardiac arrest, epinephrine will never be an immediately called for intervention. All right, let's stick with tachydysrhythmias for the next question. Which of the following treatments is contraindicated in a young person who has WPW with atrial fibrillation? Is it A, adenosine? B, ibutilide, C, procainamide, or D, synchronized cardioversion. AFib with Wolf-Parkinson-White. In this case, you definitely want to avoid AV nodal blocking agents, which might increase conduction through the accessory pathway. So I'll go with choice A, adenosine. Perfect logic. 
You want to avoid all AV nodal blocking agents like amiodarone, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and digoxin. If you were to block the AV node, rapid conduction through the accessory pathway could lead to an irregular ventricular tachycardia, which could further deteriorate into VFib and even hemodynamic collapse in the worst case. Yeah, definitely something you want to avoid. Let's back up for a second and talk about the pathophysiology of WPW. In patients with WPW, there's a congenital accessory pathway from the atria to the ventricles via the bundle of Kent. On an EKG, conduction via this pathway leads to a delta wave, which is a slurring of the upstroke of the QRS complex, a shortened PR interval, and a widening of the QRS. This pattern is not surprisingly called the WPW pattern. When the accessory pathway results in a tachydysrhythmia, this is then called WPW syndrome. And in those in WPW with AFib, their hearts are conducting via both the accessory pathway as well as via the AV node. In any young patient in AFib or those with a wide and bizarre change in QRS pattern or those in extremely fast tachycardia, you should definitely consider WPW as etiology. And quickly, before we move on to the next question, the other answer choices here are not only not contraindicated, they may actually be helpful. Ibutilide and procainamide can be used to treat WPW with AFib. Synchronized cardioversion should be safe for unstable patients with WPW, like those with hypotension, active chest pain, altered mental status, or any other signs of poor perfusion. And make sure to check out the pictures in the blog for this one. There's a great teaching image as well as several characteristic EKGs that review both the orthodromic and antidromic patterns. Definitely worth checking out. We're moving from the medical to a traumatic resuscitation. In a patient with traumatic brain injury, which of the following secondary insults should be given the highest priority for correcting in the ED? Is it A, hypercarbia, B, hyperpyrexia, C, hypotension, or D, hypothermia? These all sound like things we'd want to avoid, but I know that hypoxia and hypotension have been specifically associated with worse outcomes, so I'll go choice C, hypotension. That's right. After head trauma, it's not just the primary injury that you need to treat. You need to focus on minimizing the extent and degree of secondary brain injury as well, as secondary insults greatly influence the final neurologic outcome. I mentioned two important secondary insults before, but it's worth repeating. Even a single event of hypotension or hypoxemia can cause a significant increase in mortality and severe TBI. For this reason, hypoxemia should be rapidly corrected with advanced airway management, and hypotension should be corrected with rapid fluid resuscitation or vasopressors if necessary. In adults, in order to maintain an adequate cerebral perfusion pressure, you generally need a MAP of about 70. But what about the other answer choices here? Being hypo or hyper anything sounds like it's not really all that great. That's true, but none of them have been shown to affect outcomes to as great a degree as hypotension does. Hypercarbia causes vasodilation and increased cerebral blood flow. This increases intracranial pressure, which would lower cerebral perfusion pressure. In severe TBI, you may even consider pursuing the opposite, hypocarbia, as this causes cerebral vasoconstriction and in the short term may produce helpful increases in cerebral perfusion pressure. Hyperpyrexia should also be avoided. It definitely has negative effects, but to a lesser degree than hypotension. Lastly, hypothermia can worsen coagulopathy, so it's important to avoid it, but hypoxia and hypotension should be controlled first. Nice review. We're headed back into the thorax for the next one. A 45-year-old man with a history of opioid abuse presents to the ED with new onset syncope. While you're evaluating the patient, he becomes unresponsive. On the monitor, you see the rhythm that we have up on the blog, and it looks like it's torsades. Which of the following medications is the most likely cause of this presentation? Is it A, buprenorphine naloxone, B, fentanyl, C, ketorolac, or D, methadone? Torsade is often caused by drugs that prolong the QT, so I'm going to go with choice D, methadone, since that definitely prolongs the QT interval. 
Exactly. And make sure to check out the EKG rhythm up on the blog for a classic strip of torsade. It shows a polymorphic ventricular tachycardia with QRS complexes that vary in axis and amplitude over an isometric line. Can you explain why torsade occurs on the chemical level? Basically, torsade results from derangements in ion flow. These derangements lead to prolonged action potentials and the generation of spontaneous upstrokes. This ultimately results in premature ventricular depolarizations. And how about for methadone specifically? How does this lead to torsade? Well, methadone blocks the flow of potassium ions through the human etherogogo-related gene channels, or HERG channels. This delays cardiac repolarization and thus torsade. Did you just say the etherogogo-related gene? That's such an odd name. I wonder how they came up with it. Funny you should ask. It's named after Drosophila flies, whose legs would shake when anesthetized with ether, reminiscent of dancing popular in the 1960s at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go bar in West Hollywood. Thank you, William Kaplan, for that. And that's probably the most random thing we'll ever have on the podcast. Getting back on topic, we already mentioned the most common risk factor for torsade. That's drug interactions. Can you name some other important risk factors? There are quite a few. Some of the important ones include female gender, hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, structural heart disease, stroke, brain injury, and bradyarrhythmias. In terms of specific drugs, think of antidysrhythmics, non-sedating antihistamines, macrolides, antidepressants, and antipsychotics as categories of drugs that often prolong the QT interval. And one last one here. How do you treat torsade? In a stable patient, torsade can be treated with magnesium. In an unstable patient, unsynchronized cardioversion or overdrive pacing may be performed. All right, you're up for the next one. An 84-year-old man presents from a nursing home. The patient is lethargic and unable to provide any history. The transferred record reports a new cough and chills. His vital signs show a temperature of 102, blood pressure of 88 over 42, heart rate of 118, respiratory rate of 22, and an oxygen saturation of 95% on room air. In addition to an IV normal saline bolus of 30 cc's per kilogram, which of the following is the most appropriate empiric treatment? Is it A, cefepime and vancomycin and azithromycin, B, ceftriaxone and azithromycin, C, ceftriaxone and vancomycin and azithromycin, or D, ciprofloxacin and metronidazole? Clearly, this patient is septic, with the likely source being pneumonia, based on his cough and fever. Since he's coming from a nursing home, you have to be concerned for HCAP, so he needs broad-spectrum coverage, like choice A, vanc, cefepime, and azithromycin, to cover MRSA, gram-negatives, including pseudomonas, as well as atypical pneumonias. That's right. The nursing home definitely places him at risk for healthcare-acquired pneumonia. What else places you at risk for HCAP? Well, there are actually four main criteria. Number one is an infection occurring within 90 days of a two-day or longer hospitalization. Number two is a resident from a nursing home or a long-term care facility. Number three is an infection within 30 days of receiving IV antibacterial therapy, chemotherapy, or wound care. Or number four, a patient on hemodialysis. Let's get back to antibiotics. You mentioned that you need anti-pseudomonal coverage, MRSA coverage, as well as atypical coverage. What antibiotic choices does that leave you with? So a lot of this will depend on your hospital's local antibiogram, but in general, you need three drugs. The first drug must cover gram-negatives, including pseudomonas. Typical choices include cefepime, ceftazidime, piperacillin tazobactam, or imipenem For MRSA coverage, most institutions turn to either vancomycin or linazolid. And lastly, you must cover the atypicals. The most common agent is azithromycin, although ciprofloxacin and levofloxacin can also be used. Going over the other answer choices, choice B, ceftriaxone and azithromycin, that's the coverage for community-acquired pneumonia. That can't be used because it covers neither MRSA nor pseudomonas. Choice C, vancomycin, ceftriaxone and azithromycin, that covers most pathogens but won't cover pseudomonas, and this patient definitely needs anti-pseudomonal coverage. And choice D, ciprofloxacin and metronidazole, that also offers incomplete coverage for HCAP. 
And don't forget to draw blood cultures prior to administering antibiotics and start your 30 cc per kg bolus, as long as there are no contraindications, like the patient has end-stage renal disease or a concurrent CHF exacerbation. But even if they do have ESRD, they likely can handle and in fact need a small fluid bolus. So don't be afraid to give them a little and reassess. All right, let's close out with one last cardiology question. What is the most likely underlying chronic medical problem in a patient whose EKG shows at least three different P-wave morphologies with an irregular heart rate between 100 and 180? Is it A, cardiomyopathy, B, COPD, C, hyperthyroidism, or D, mitral stenosis? I'm pretty sure you're trying to describe multifocal atrial tachycardia, which is associated with choice B, COPD. That's absolutely right. Definitely check out the image on the blog for a great multifocal atrial tachycardia EKG. As I tried to get it in this question, MAT is a form of atrial tachycardia in which there are three different P-wave morphologies. The rate is irregular, oscillating at rates between 100 and 180. In almost 60% of cases, patients have underlying pulmonary disease. It's caused by chronic hypoxia as well as pulmonary hypertension. Primary cardiac pathology is also a possible etiology, but that's a little less common. And not surprisingly, to treat MAT, you should optimize therapy for the underlying condition and provide oxygen if hypoxic. You might also need to control the rate with nodal blocking agents if supportive measures fail. Before we get started with a rapid review, I should also point out that some of the other answer choices aren't unreasonable. Choice C, hyperthyroidism, is definitely on the differential and should be excluded in new cases of AFib. Choice D, mitral stenosis, as well as other valvular diseases, may also lead to AFib as the atria dilates over time. Choice A, cardiomyopathy, that's the only one that's not associated with atrial dysrhythmias. Cardiomyopathy is actually instead associated with ventricular dysrhythmias. Nice, and I'll get us started with the rapid review. In a witnessed cardiac arrest with a patient in VFib, immediate defibrillation is needed. In an unwitnessed cardiac arrest with an unknown downtime, regardless of rhythm, chest compressions should be initiated immediately. The defibrillating dose for a biphasic defibrillator is 200 joules. In a monophasic defibrillator, use 360 joules. Biphasic defibrillators are preferred as they cause less cardiac damage and have a higher first shock success rate. In AFib with WPW, avoid AV nodal blocking agents like amiodarone, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and digoxin. For an unstable patient in AFib with WPW, synchronized cardioversion should be performed. In patients with traumatic brain injury, hypoxia and hypotension are associated with worse outcomes. Torsade is often caused by drugs that prolong the QT. Other risk factors for torsade include female gender, hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, structural heart disease, stroke, brain injury, and bradyarrhythmias. Torsade should be treated with magnesium if the patient is stable. In an unstable patient, synchronized cardioversion or overdrive pacing should be performed. There are four criteria for HCAP. One is infection occurring within 90 days of a two-day or longer hospitalization. Two is a resident from a nursing home or long-term care facility. Three is an infection within 30 days of receiving IV antibacterial therapy, chemotherapy, or wound care. Or four, a patient on hemodialysis. HCAP is typically treated with three drugs, one covering gram negatives, including pseudomonas, one for MRSA coverage, and lastly, a third for atypical coverage. Always draw blood cultures before giving antibiotics when treating suspected sepsis and start a 30 cc per kg bolus, assuming they don't have any contraindications. Multifocal atrial tachycardia is often associated with COPD. All right, so that concludes the new content for Roshcast episode 31. Don't forget to check out the EM Clerkship podcast for a solid core review of tachydysrhythmias. And before we finish, we also wanted to remind you about a competition being hosted by Rosh Review. Go to our blog site at roshreview.com slash blog for the full details and a chance to win $1,000. 
The deadline is this Friday, September 15th. Be sure to also check out the blog for questions from this episode and prior episodes, related images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. There are also tons of other great resources there to help prepare you for the boards and for the wards. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Roshcast and at RoshReview. And you can always email us at Roshcast at RoshReview.com with any feedback, corrections, or suggestions. And you can help us pick questions by identifying ones you'd like us to review. Write Roshcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank. Lastly, if you have a minute, make sure to rate us and leave comments on iTunes to help spread the word about Roshcast. We'll be back soon with more high-quality rapid review.